morning. Our reading is from Revelations chapter 1. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes from the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. I, John, am your brother, and your partner in suffering, and in God's kingdom, and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast, It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the city of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sidious, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, 
and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thank you, Amy. Good morning. I'm Rob, if we haven't met yet, and I'm so glad you're here, if it's your first time especially, or if it's been like a first time. So let's just get into it, because this is some crazy, fascinating stuff. So the best way I think we can get into it is with a story. So once upon a time, there was a dangerous seacoast, much like the one that my friend Joe and Carice just visited. Um, it was notorious for its shipwrecks. There was a primitive little life-saving station at one little edge of the coast, and there was uh, a small lighthouse. It was actually like a 12-foot pole with an oil lamp on that pole, and the people of this small village took turns keeping the light fueled and watching the seacoast at night in the turbulent sea. And every time a ship found itself in trouble, the little lighthouse had an alarm and it would sound and this brave band of villagers would rush out to help. I mean, the ones who were the best soldiers, they would row the boats out into the stormy waters with little thought for themselves. The teenagers would actually go out and scan the coast for any bodies or any survivors and they would pick them up and bring this ba them back to the little hut. And the women and children, they would help those with medical professional training and they would bring beds, and, or the beds were already there, but they would bring blankets and soup and tea for those that were rescued. And after one especially disastrous shipwreck, uh, the small community met together and decided, this small hut is not working for us. We need a larger hut. We need a bigger station. And so they did. They, they voted. They decided to build this bigger station. And they, the whole community helped in its construction. Some carried supplies, some laid the bricks, others made the meals to help the workers. And when it was completed, oh, it was their pride and joy. They named the, the lighthouse Our Lighthouse. And the name was placed proudly over the entrance door. And the lighthouse light, now perched 40 feet above the ocean, was powered by oil, and for the next several years, the new lighthouse and larger rescue station saved dozens, maybe even hundreds of ships, and hundreds, if not thousands, of lives. They were indeed proud of what they were doing. And some who had been saved, and others that lived outside of their village, but along that seacoast, they had come. They wanted to become part of this rescue operation. They wanted to become members. They wanted to give their time and their energy and their resources to support this life-saving operation. And so they did. New boats were purchased. New additions were made to the rescue center. And the lighthouse, once small and primitive, began to grow. The, the members became burdened by the inefficiencies of the station. And so they proposed additional equipment, modern electronics, and fine furniture. The oil lamp was replaced by an electric automatic light. The analog and handmade equipment was discarded so that a new digital and de newly designed control room, control room could be installed. And then the emergency cots were thrown out and replaced with fine furniture. So all of the upgrades to our lighthouse made it bright and beautiful like new, actually. In fact, our lighthouse became one of the most popular gathering places all along the coast. Fewer and fewer members were really interested, though, in braving the seas, so they hired professional rescue workers to do that. So rescuing sailors, healing the sick, and feeding the hungry just occurred 
less and less at our lighthouse. But the original goal of the station wasn't lost. They still had life-saving pictures on the wall. They even had an old lifeboat that was, that was hung in the room of sweet memories with dim lighting to accent it and cover up the dust that was getting growing on that. About this time, a large ship wrecked off the coast, and the new rescue workers brought in almost 100 sailors, drenched, sick, dirty sailors. Strangers, actually, because most of the people on this coast had red hair, and it was obvious that these people did not have red hair, some blonde, some brown, some even jet black hair. And all of a sudden, the beautiful, updated lighthouse became crowded and cluttered. There was an emergency meeting and a special committee was formed to fix the situation. They said, let's build a shower house on the other side of the lighthouse. That way that we can bring the sailors there and they can get cleaned up before they come into our lighthouse. Then another committee got together and said, you know what we need to do? We need to take the room of sweet memories, remove the boat, and put those cots back up. That way they can get cleaned up and then healed up. And then they can come into our lighthouse. And it worked for a while. But at the next committee meeting of the lighthouse, the room was just filled with anger and division. I mean, some people said, look, we just want to get out of the life-saving business altogether. I mean, it's a lot of work. The place gets dirty every time these sailors and strangers are brought in. The new shower house helps, but, but they just eat our food, use our facilities. They don't even bother to learn the rules. I mean, this light is amazing. It should light the whole way. Why are we continuing to save such careless sailors? Besides, we all know each other. We worked hard to make our lighthouse beautiful. At the same meeting, there was a minority group who stood and protested, said, wait, life-saving is our mission. It's the reason we built the lighthouse. It's the reason we've served the lighthouse. It's, it's in fact, why we made it bigger and added better equipment so that we could get better at life-saving. It should impact, life-saving should impact everything we do, regardless of how big or beautiful our lighthouse gets. It became so contentious that a vote was taken. Minority group, though, was just that, a minority. They were voted down and told if they wanted to continue to save the lives of various kinds of people who were careless about their water, their, their sailing, they could go start their own life-saving station down the coast. Now, we don't live in a remote fishing area without modern medical equipment. We don't you know, can't fathom what it would be like to not have a government-run Coast Guard. So it might be hard to personally engage with this story. We do have opportunities to personally engage with digital devices, though, all the time. You know, they offer these escapes for us through games or social media, so we don't even have to deal with uncomfortable emotions like sadness or boredom, or sacrifice, or, or, or just sadness, period, right? And to add to this, our society's shift to raise up happiness as the supreme emotion 
If you, if you think I'm wrong, think about it. Uh, kids today are growing up believing that if they're not happy all the time, something is terribly wrong. And we can't really blame the kids because parents somehow started believing that it's their job, it's my job to make a kid happy all the time. And then it, once those kids become teenagers, then the parents think it's their job to make sure they have every advantage that they need to su- succeed in the world. And any hardship needs to be mowed down before them. This is the world that we live in. And it is, it is killing our young people. It's raising the anxiety level to, to unprecedented proportions. And, and what is being lost is the ability to overcome. And why I bring that up today is because the theme of Revelation is overcome or overcomer. It's the word that's used over and over in this book, in this last chapter that we've been reading. Some of us actually finished it, others of us um, maybe missed a few days, and others of us are, are just getting started, and we don't have to feel bad that we're behind. But we've read through the entire New Testament, and we come to this last book, and it talks about things are going to get worse before they get better, but yet to the one who overcomes. Not just to the individual, but to the church who overcomes. So just imagine for a moment if Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you don't know the story, it's in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, but they were brought in exile to a place called Babylon. Babylon sounds a lot like Babel, which sounds like the Tower of Babel, which is like the height of human independence and rebellion from God. So we're supposed to connect those two things. And they're exiled in Babylon. They are told to worship a human being. Now imagine if Daniel was growing up in today's society. In this high anxiety, low overcomingness, would he have the perseverance, the trust, and the resilience in God to not worship that emperor, Persian emperor Darius, even though it would mean being thrown in a lion's den? I just love this picture by this guy named St. Peter that I can't remember his last name. Um, with the bones in the front and the snarling faces and the desperate prayer, but yet this unwavering belief that God is with him. Or Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, would they have the perseverance, the trust in God, and the ability to overcome and not worship the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, even though the threat of not worshiping him was being thrown in a fiery furnace? But they say to the king, even if our God does not save us, we will not bow down and worship you. It's hard to think about human worship in our day and age, but to John, the writer of the Revelation, he understood this. John was exiled to this lonely island named Patmos because he refused to worship the Roman emperor, this evil Caesar named Domitian, near the end of the first century. Church history tells us that even John was boiled in hot oil. But the emperor thought he'd just left John to die on that remote island. But it was there 
that the spirit of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, the exalted Jesus that we heard Amy talk about in, from the scripture reading, that John received four incredible visions that make up the book called Revelation. And I think we need the book of Revelation today. We need it not to, to figure out the secret code of when Jesus is coming back. Man, if I had to talk for that and we put it out on YouTube, I think even I could get a million hits on it. But that is not why Revelation was written. Because if we needed internet headlines and today's newspapers to figure out the meaning of Revelation, then we'd be the first generation that could figure it out, which might be a little bit arrogant. But I do think we need the book of Revelation today because we need to wake up to Jesus' agenda to care about the things that matter to him instead of the things that just matter to us. So, let's look for a few minutes at what it says that would be helpful for us. And if you read it already and you're like, I'm still confused. Well, I would say, um, it does require some prerequisite reading. Like the prophetic books of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. Those would be helpful starters. Probably Genesis and Isaiah 2, which, by the way, are some of the longest books in the Old Testament and slightly confusing. So, good luck. But what I think Revelation does do is it gives us this symbolic vision that's not just for John's day, but also for us today. See, John is writing to bring assurance to those who are being persecuted, to those who stood in front of the microphones and said, this is where the love of God remains, even though I'm still struggling to believe it. John is giving you assurance if that is in your place today. I just had a friend from high school who posted a picture and said, well, here we go. I'm going through cancer. She's early 40s. John writes to give assurance to those who are suffering, to those who feel like they need to sell out to the man or the woman. It might not be a Roman emperor, but it might be a boss. It might be the economic world that we live in today. But he's not just writing to bring assurance to the persecuted. He's also writing to awaken those who've fallen asleep, who've gotten really tired or really comfortable. It is not the most cheerleading message. But he does tell us what we're going to do. So, for the last half of this message, we're going to focus on what the Spirit says to the seven churches. Because to whatever degree in Revelation 2 and 3 that these symptoms or these encouragements are true of us, we should hear them. And we want to not just focus on one in particular. We want to look actually at what it says to all of them. Because, you know, you might think, ah, I don't know, this might just be, maybe you grew up believing that, like, these two chapters were just about the past, and then the rest is about the future, and we can crack the code. But I think it's kind of not just coincidence that there's two of these seven churches who get completely negative praise report. Like, there's nothing positive to say. They were the first two cities destroyed. They're completely uninhabited today. I think it's um, Sardis and Laodicea. And the two churches that endured the longest in that time before the Turkish conquest came and overtook them were the two cities that got full praise and no criticism. What, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Now, you might think that's just coincidence, but I, I think 
that that's giving us a hint about what Jesus says to the church, not just then, but to today. That it's going to get harder before it gets easier, and God will prevail in the end. But if you're not careful, every human kingdom will end up just like Babylon, trusting in its own military power and its own economic strength rather than trusting in God. We may need to hear that. So, uh, we did this a couple weeks ago, but we'll do it again. We'll do a little seminary for everyone. So, um, you know, if you caught this word overcomer, the other thing that happens often over and over is this word lampstand. Did you catch it in this, the, in Amy's reading? The lampstand are the churches. Okay, so the first time we see lampstand in the Bible, anybody know? It's okay, it's Exodus. It's the second book. You know, if you would have gone to the beginning, you would have been all right. So in Exodus, it's in the description of God rescuing the people from from Egypt and then bringing them into this place and then teaching them how to be his family, his kids, his blessed people who would then bless people. And so he's constructing these festivals for them. He's helping them understand that it's okay to take a break in their life. They don't have to work all the time. And then he's trying to tell these people who are rebellious, who don't understand a relationship with God and what this God is like, how to be in relationship with him. So he creates this tabernacle, this place where he would dwell. And he has to help them understand that holy, to be holy, isn't just to be perfect. It's also to be set apart. And so he creates this place in the temple, this tabernacle, Um, So this is what the tabernacle and then later what the temple would look like. And so the place under that curtain or blanket is, um, it looks like a giant afghan, doesn't it? Yeah. So in that place, that's the, the holy place and the most holy place. And in those two places, you can zoom in on that one, he, he's, he talks about, God talks about the, describes, um, the lampstand, the, Ark of the Covenant, the Altar of Incense, and the Golden Table. These are the pieces of furniture that are described intricately by God. The material, how they're used, the function of them. And he goes into, like, it seems like way too much detail for a table or a lamp. But anytime it goes into way too much detail, it's because it's important. Specifically, he gives this vivid description of how the lampstand is to be built, what kind of oil it should burn, and where it was to be placed. See, the lampstand was not to shine a bright light on the whole room. It was set next to the golden table to shine on the showbread. Um, Exodus uh, 25 says, Place the bread of the presence... On the table before me at all times. This is made out of the manna from the wilderness. This is what Jesus will one day refer to as my body, which is broken for you. This is God's ultimate symbol of his presence and provision for them. It is so very good that they are to leave it there on this golden table at all times. And the purpose of the lampstand, make the seven lamps for the lampstand and set them so they reflect the light forward so that they reflect the light and illuminate the bread. The ultimate symbol of God's presence, of his provision, and of his goodness. That's why the lampstand is there. Okay, there's our little moment of seminary for everyone. Now, think about the seven churches that are called the lampstand. 
and the first time we see the golden lampstand in Scripture. And what the purpose of the golden lampstand is to do? It's to illuminate the bread of the presence, the bread that Jesus will lift up one day on his last supper and say, this is my body. The church is to illuminate Jesus, the ultimate symbol of God's presence and God's goodness in the world. Like, it's not to cast a shining light over everything. It's just to shine the light on Jesus, on who he is, on what he's done. And, and that, actually, all of the encouragements and warnings in Revelation 2 and in Revelation 3 to the churches are either encouragements or warnings to, about the church's impact and influence in the cities that they're in. God cares so much for the world and the specific cities in this place, and I believe in this place, that he says, I got to warn you and I got to encourage you. We're going to look at the first two, or the first one and the last one. This is what it says to the church in Ephesus, the first church that's listed. Revelation 2, 2 through 5. I know your deeds. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil uh, evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but they're not. You have discovered they are liars. You have suffered for, patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me so that the, and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from among the place in its churches. Actually, archaeology has shown that at, sometime after this, that Ephesus part of the city or part of this church was literally moved two and a half miles. Now, I've always, always read and always heard this as you've lost your first love. You need, to, you need to love God. But actually, when you read it in context, this is more to do with loving others. It says you don't tolerate the practices of evil people. But what they were actually doing, though, is they were, they were hating people. Not just hating the practices of those people that God loves. They lost their first love. I think as churches, it's so easy to get distracted and to spotlight things other than Jesus. I think as people, it's easy to get distracted to get sidetracked, whether you have personal issues or personal battles or things that really matter. And and the spotlight shifts and you're shining on something other than Jesus. So what are, what are we to do? I think revelation, I think the spirit of Jesus calls us to seek him. That's, that's what we're to do first. He is always seeking us, but we are called to seek him. And we are given these revelations. One of them was in Revelation 1 about who Jesus is and what he looks like. Another one is in Revelation 4 and 5. And then at the end of the book, we're given this huge picture, not only of Jesus, but also of the new world. We are given this to remember that even though we're in this present time and it might be hard, there is something better. There is someone who overcame, so we don't have to try and overcome. We instead live by faith in the one who did overcome. Are you with me? Come on, Minnesota. Yes. So it's not based on our hope and trust and work. It is trusting in his work, 
That's how we seek Jesus. Now, if you did finish reading the whole New Testament, then how are you going to keep seeking Jesus? If you didn't, are you going to continue? No guilt, no shame, just trying to ask a question, to get up in your business. (laughs) Just trying out new things, you know. (laughs) I got three teenagers. And I'm, I'm supposed to be. Not all the time, but here. Advent is a beautiful opportunity to seek Jesus. Uh, as a church, we are designing Advent to be simple and sacred in our gatherings and then for activities for you at home. The, the world's going to tell you that Christmas has already started, and that's fine. If you put up your Christmas tree already, I still love you. Um, psychology says that you're a happier person anyway, but I think it's to go for the good feelings of Christmas. And the reality is that the Christian year starts with Advent, which is waiting. That Advent gives us this opportunity to have to sit with uncomfortable emotions. That sometimes sadness is what we have to do. Sometimes grieving is what we have to do. Sometimes boredom is what we have to do. And even adults, we, we keep our phones in our pockets. Or heaven forbid, we, we spend time with people we like and we shut them off. I'm just saying. And we encounter what Jesus wants us to make sure we encounter in Advent so that we can truly celebrate Christmas. It's one of the ways that we can seek him. We have to remember, though, that the only way we can continue to truly love the people that are around us, and especially those that are different than us, is realizing that God already loves us. That he is for us, and he is pursuing us. Regardless of what we did last week, or what our boss said to us, or what our friend said to us, or what we tell ourselves, he does love us. So we can seek him. Second one that I think the scripture calls us to, and and even Revelation calls us to, to shine on and spotlight Jesus is to serve Jesus. How we say it around here is we demonstrate the good news of Jesus through acts of love. So we feed the, we, we love the lonely and feed the hungry and serve the needy. We do things like arm full of love to say, regardless of the shame you feel about not having enough Christmas gifts, we'll just bring gifts that are undeserved in unconditional love. Not to preach at you, but to say you are loved. See, Jesus tells the last church, Laodicea, Revelation 3, verses 15 and 16, I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. I would, but since you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always heard that as either you love Jesus, you're hot for Jesus, or you just reject him. You know, like, here's the line, decide. But that doesn't sound like anything else in Scripture. Maybe, maybe Joshua saying, choose this day whom you will serve. 
But if you understand that Laodicea is actually built halfway up a mountain, like that's where the city was, and near the city, there were these hot springs, and then up on the mountain is this refreshing, pure ice water. They had aqueducts that would flow down to other cities. So you have this refreshing, pure water that is offered to drink, or you have these hot springs that are useful for healing. Sometimes they would mix the sources, or they would just let the water carelessly go down the aqueduct, and by the time it got to another city, it was lukewarm, useful for nothing. So the point isn't to accept Jesus or reject Jesus. The point is to be useful. The point is to to realize who you are, ask the Spirit of God, how have you made me? Am I like the, the cold water? Am I someone who brings refreshment and purity into people's lives? Or am I someone who is hot like the springs that actually gently brings healing into someone's life? I don't have to preach to do either one. I can be the refreshing person, I can be the healing person, but I'm not gonna be lukewarm. I think that's what it means, not only to serve Jesus, but the last thing, to share Jesus. Because sometimes people do need to hear the words of Jesus declared, words of truth, that are words of hope in a world where we don't like to talk about absolute truth. So sometimes this is like, I think the message of Revelation is Jesus is awesome. He is. I mean, there's a pastor friend I know. I'm, I'm going to try not to get distracted because we're almost done. And he has a picture of what Jesus is described like in Revelation. And it's freaky. Like flames coming out of the eyes, sword coming out of the mouth, like stars in his hand. I'm like, ooh. But remember, it's apocalyptic literature, which is a fancy word for that's not actually what he looks like. That's what you might sense when you hear the words or if you saw him resurrected. You might feel the power that's there, but it's probably not exactly how he's going to look. Sometimes people need words like that, words of clarification, words of encouragement, and sometimes words of warning. If Jesus has changed your life. It's okay to be specific about it. So instead of just saying, Jesus is awesome, you could say, why Jesus is awesome? Like, he's given me more patience. Like, I didn't swear on my kids when we were getting all stressed out this morning because someone couldn't find something. Yes, he's given me, he's covered my shame. He's forgiven my sin. He's given me greater purpose in my life. And if he's done those things for you, Sometimes people need to know. Jesus says that the lamp is to be put on a stand, giving light to all in the house. Or as John the Baptist said it, John was like this burning light in John 5, shining on Jesus. He himself was not the light. He was a witness to the light, John 1. That's what you and I are called to do. We're not supposed to illuminate everything, church, but we are supposed to illuminate Jesus. That's why God has placed us in the world because people are still looking for light. In fact, they're desperate for it. See, our lighthouse 
still continue to grow. In fact, our lighthouse added a concert-quality sound system. They added a cocktail bar for refreshments, and a dance floor was put in, and on cold, blustery nights, you could see the little light coming out of the, the gathering space, and you could hear the music, and you could sense the laughter. People were singing and dancing and celebrating. It was beautiful-ish. Because on one cold winter night, where a huge storm was brewing way out at sea, there was a boat that was in trouble. And the, the sailors were, were searching and searching for that bright lighthouse light, but no one had noticed that a wiring short had happened and the light was completely dark. And the others who had started their own little rescue stations down the coast, because history has a way of repeating itself, their lighthouses either had their lamps go down the oil burn out, or they were just too small for the people to see the light. And so the wind was pounding and the waves were pounding. And in the darkness, they crashed into the rocks. And it was so tumultuous that there was no way that the rescue boats were going to help. So people were, sailors were literally jumping off the side of the boat and trying to swim for shore. And so many of them didn't make it. But one did. He made it to the shore. He dragged himself up. There wasn't anyone going back and forth. But he saw and heard through the pounding rain and above, like below the dark tower, he saw this light coming out of these windows. And he staggered up. He nearly drowned. He was completely wasted. But he staggered up to the door of this majestic room and he banged and he banged and he banged and he banged and he begged for help. But between the pounding rain outside and the, the reverberating music inside, no one heard him. And no one saw him. Until the sick soldier just slumped down on the ground and surrendered to the cold. And as he did, he looked up and he saw a new light with a new sign that said, Our clubhouse, no entry, members only. Friends, as long as I am your pastor, restoration will be a rescue boat ship. If God wants to give us our own lighthouse, then he'll show us one or we'll find it. But it will not become a clubhouse. And we are certainly not going to be in the cruise ship business. I mean, they do good things. It's just not going to be us. We're here to help people find Jesus. We're to help them, once they've found Jesus, to join with him and help restore other people and transform the community around us. We want to be like Jesus in Revelation 3 to this church that has done nothing right. Who says graciously, I stand at the door and I knock because I am outside of your community, Laodicea, but I love you. I love you and I will not burst in on your life. I will just stand at the door and knock and I will come in and we will share a meal together and we will have beautiful communion if you open the door. 
And if you do, you will be one who is victorious. Not only in your personal life, but you will sit with me and my Father in a heavenly throne room. And it will be better than anything you or I can build today on earth. So will you seek, will you serve, and will you share? Will you pray with me? Jesus, sometimes you told hard stories. And I pray that we could sit in this story. God, that we could hear what you need us to hear. You say over and over in Revelation, let one who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So God, I pray that your Spirit would speak to us right now and what you are saying to our church and the church in America today. God, I pray that in the midst of suffering, wherever people are at, or in the midst of, of weariness, wherever people are at, or in the midst of, of a sleepness, wherever people are at, God, that they would get that picture that you offer of the new heaven and the new earth, this new world, where the old has gone away and the sea is gone and this holy city that is, that is lit by your glory, God. We don't even need the sun. We just have your illuminating glory shining around us, in us, and through us. And you say that God's home is now among our people and you will live with us and we will live with you. And you will wipe every tear from our eye. And there'll be no more death and no more sorrow and no more crying and no more pain. All of these things will be gone. And if that's not enough, you give us a picture of what you will be like, sound like, and look like Jesus in your heavenly throne room that you are making all things through, that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and to all who are thirsty, you give freely, not from just hot springs or just cold springs, but from the water of life. God, help us to be people who are overcomers. No matter who we are or where we're at or what we've done, God, God, speak to us right now that you are at the door and you're knocking. Maybe you're inside for some people. You've been in relationship with them, but you're just over at the wall. You're knocking. You're trying to remind them to open the door to see if there's anyone that's outside that needs to be let in because it's a cold, cold, icy world out there. But really, to you, God, there is no out there and in there. There's just humankind and you. I pray that we will turn and put our hearts towards you. And as we put our hearts towards you, we would open our eyes to those around us, to those that need you, to those that love you, because we are yours, God.